Well, if you join me in turning to Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, we're making our way through the gospel of Luke. We'll be looking at verses 14 through 30. Also, uh, I'm supposed to remind you, the leadership team has asked me to remind you that uh, this is the week of, of turning in uh, pledges, and uh, I, if you God has so laid that on your heart and you haven't done so already, that would be very helpful for us. We're beginning to plan our budget for next year, and it's going to, to help us know uh, how, to, how to do some planning there as well. Luke chapter 4, uh, verses 14 through 30, if you'd stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together as a church this morning. Beginning in verse 14, it says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you'll you'll quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him up out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we're excited about our time together this morning. We're excited about our word, your word because we recognize our need for it. Give us grace this morning not just to hear it, not just to understand it, but to apply it to our lives, for our hearts to be transformed. Give us wisdom as we implement it in our lives. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. When someone believes that they have a right to a certain privilege or benefit, we say that that person has a sense of entitlement. When a person believes that they have a right to something that is actually a a privilege or a benefit, we say that that person has a sense of entitlement. 
For example, a parent goes to a teacher this next week and says, my children and I are getting ready to leave on a trip for spring break. We've decided to take a couple extra days, and we'd like you to give us the work in advance. And the teacher says, well, we don't have those lesson plans prepared. It depends on how things go this next week. And the parent becomes angry at that teacher. That parent has a sense of entitlement. Look, I pay your salary. I deserve to get what I want because I want it. Give me those extra lessons. A middle-aged man is working, and he decides that he won't save for retirement because he believes that other people should be obligated to pay for his retirement later on. He has a sense of entitlement. Other people should take care of me, he says to himself. You see, our, our culture is awash with this sense of entitlement, isn't it? This health care bill that's about to be voted on today, it's whether or not you agree with the bill, hopefully we can all agree that it's interesting the way the, the debate has been framed, isn't it? There's a sense that the bill is either right or wrong on the basis of how it affects us personally. Whenever the benefits of the bill are being talked about, it said this is how it's going to affect you, this is what it's going to do for you, and there's it's very, very often there's very little discussion about whether or not that's even an appropriate basis to judge the rightness or wrongness of a piece of legislation. How does it affect me? What will it do for me? That's a sense of entitlement. Or even this idea, look, it's wrong that anyone else in our country would have more benefits or more privileges than I do. If this person has access to this type of health care, then I have a right to that as well. That is a sense of entitlement. Our culture is awash in it. Michael Lewis just wrote a book. Uh, the name of the book is called The Big Short, Inside the Doomsday Machine. And he talks about the recent financial meltdown in the subprime mortgage sector of the economy specifically. And I heard an excerpt from an interview he did with 60 Minutes. And it's very interesting as he's talking about his time as a young man in his 20s, he says, there was a moment in time where I was a, a, a stock trader working on Wall Street. He says, sometimes I'd be in, engaged in these trades, and I'd get these bonuses for hundreds of thousands of dollars. He says, and I would have no idea what I had just done to earn several hundred thousand dollars. No clue. But, he said, Everyone else around me was getting these same bonuses. And therefore, there was a sense of entitlement in that culture. If other people are making this amount of money, if other people are getting these bonuses, I have a right to that as well. That is a, spirit, that is a sense of entitlement, and it is pervasive in our culture. There is also, in our culture a spiritual sense of entitlement, isn't there? It expresses itself in several ways. One way is this. Uh, I'm an American, therefore, surely, God finds favor with me. I'm an American, or I'm a moral person, surely God finds favor with me. Now, maybe those of us in, in this room are not so arrogant or don't express it so brazenly, 
but sometimes we have a, a slightly more subtle form of spiritual self and uh, sense of entitlement. We word it this way. Okay, I don't deserve God's grace. No one does. But if God is going to be gracious to anyone, I could see why he might choose me. No one deserves God's grace, yada, yada. But if he's going to be gracious upon humanity, I can see why I might be one of the, the chosen people that he decides to like. Sometimes, sometimes this attitude is subtle, but it's there. Imagine if we were to take you and place you on the stage here to your left, my right, and then I was to take a, a convicted murderer place him here on the right side of the stage. And I were to ask you as you stood up here, which one of you, here's you, uh, this fine upstanding member of the community, and here's this convicted murderer, this person who's been involved in addictive behaviors, has harmed others, a life of hardened crime. None of you deserve God's grace, but which one of you might have a better chance at achieving it? Which of one of you might deserve him to show favor a little bit more than the other? At that moment, where we, in our heart of hearts, think, me. We've betrayed a spiritual sense of entitlement and arrogance that demonstrates we don't understand the favor and grace of God. It could be a very dangerous thing for church to have a spiritual sense of entitlement. And here's why. Here's at least two reasons why. One reason it can be dangerous is because of that moment where we say, you know what, I over here, I know I'm not the best guy in the world, but surely I'm better than fill in the blank. The moment our heart says that, it affects the way that we treat other people who come into our church. And it can be subtle, it can be subliminal, but the moment that we have that heart attitude, it affects the way that we treat other people who are just as undeserving of God's grace as we are. And we who are called to be ambassadors of God's grace, as we have this spiritual sense of arrogant self-entitlement, it affects the way that we treat the people that God has called us to reach who are no less deserving of God's grace than we are. That's one reason it's so dangerous. The second reason it's so dangerous is because those who don't recognize their need for God's grace don't receive it. It's dangerous because it affects how we treat other people, but it's also dangerous because those who have a spiritually arrogant attitude and a sense of entitlement that they deserve God's grace are in danger of not receiving God's grace. Remember, we've been going through the Gospel of Luke, and we've said that the main theme of the Gospel of Luke is that Jesus is the Savior of the self-sufficient, right? Jesus is the Savior of the, the really cool people, of the wealthy. No, we said that Jesus is the Savior of the outcast. In the Gospel of Luke, 
as we see God involved in saving people, delivering people, calling them out of their sin into relationship with him, we see God calling those who are at the very bottom of society, the very dredges, the trenches of culture, and Jesus is delivering those people into relationship with God. God is the Savior, we see in the Gospel of Luke, of the outcast. And this morning, the central idea, I believe, of this text is that God bestows his favor on the needy, not the self-sufficient. It is not the people with the spiritual sense of entitlement who receive God's favor and God's grace. It's those who recognize their need. Let's look at the text here. As we turn to the text, we see at the beginning of verse 14 that Jesus has returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Now, as we go through the Gospel of Luke, we've just seen uh, Jesus has, has been involved in uh, the, his baptism, then he goes to the wilderness and he's, he's tempted. And Luke is presenting what he calls an orderly account. When Luke uses the term orderly account, he doesn't mean chronological. What Luke is doing in his Gospel, he's, he's, he's presenting a, a theological argument of Jesus' life. Remember, the theme of the book is Savior of the Outcast. The central event for Luke is the cross. And what Luke is going to do is he's going to take Jesus away from Jerusalem, and then he's going to show Jesus getting closer and closer to his ministry in Jerusalem, and that's going to be the, the pinnacle of the Gospel of Luke is this, the crucifixion. And then the second part of Luke's work, the Gospel of Acts, he's going to take the Christian message from Jerusalem and spread it out over to the remotest parts of the world. And so he begins away from Jerusalem, takes Jesus to Jerusalem, and then expands the message to the remotest parts of the earth. The last, when we come to verse 14, we're really about a, a year separated from the events that have just taken place, maybe even a little bit more. Last year, year and a half, Jesus has been ministering. He's been in Jerusalem, and he's been in other places. You can read about his ministry in John chapters 1 through 4 and see what takes place during those first, that first part of his ministry. Now, it says that Jesus returns in the power of the Spirit, and as he returns in the power of the Spirit, he's engaged in this preaching ministry. It says that he teaches in the synagogues, and he's glorified by all. And then verse 16 says that he comes to Nazareth. Hometown boy returns home. It says the events that it describes occur on a Sabbath, and Sabbath, as you know, begins in the evening, the night before, what we would consider the night before. Jesus would have arrived in Nazareth. Nazareth is a small town, several thousand people. He would be in his home, and at the, as evening uh, began, as the dusk kind of began to, 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 to deepen and evening began, the Hazan, the synagogue attendant, would have gone to the top of his roof. And there on the top of his roof, as evening darkened, he'd look into the sky, and at the moment when the third star became visible in the deepening dusk, the temple, the synagogue attendant, the Hazan, would grab the trumpet, and Jesus would have heard three blasts of the trumpet, and at the third blast, Sabbath began. We've talked before about our goal being to understand the true Jesus, not Jesus as our, our minds kind of think of him sometimes, as our culture shapes him, but, but true Jesus. Get this in your mind. Jesus is Jewish. Sometimes we think, okay, Jesus was like 
a Gentile kind of going to synagogue. He was kind of waiting to start this new religion, so he kind of did this Jewish thing, but he's really, you know, he wasn't really Jewish. No, Jesus was Jewish. And like a good Jew, Jesus, as was his custom, the next morning gets up and goes to the synagogue. Don't think of Jesus as you think and you understand Jesus, not as some... uh, He was radical, but he wasn't someone who was out to destroy the Jewish religion. He was immersed in it. He was the fulfillment of it. Anti-Semitism has no place in Christ's church. Our Savior was Jewish. It's amazing that anti-Semitism still thrives and flourishes in the United States of America. When I was at Bethany Baptist, there was a time I actually had to ask someone to, to leave our property because they were spewing hateful things about Jewish people. Just this last week, our church, Bethany Community Church, got an anti-Semitic letter. Anti-Semitism has no place in Christ's church. Jesus, a good Jew, gets up on the Sabbath morning and he goes to synagogue. Synagogue is not the same as church. Jesus would have gone through the the main entrance to the synagogue, and as he goes in the main entrance that was reserved for the men, he goes in the synagogue, and uh, toward the back of the synagogue were the the stone seats for the women, and the the seats kind of went around the edge of the room, and based upon your importance in the community, determined where you would sit. There in the middle of the room was a lectern upon which the scroll would be placed and read, Then there in the back of the room would be like a a little box that the scrolls were kept. Jesus would have arrived at the synagogue. He sat down that Sabbath morning. And then someone stood up. Barak Atah Adonai, blessed are you, Lord. And a time of thanksgiving began. And then following the blessing of the Lord, someone stood up and said, Shema Yisrael. Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Achad. Hear, O Israel, according to Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. That would be recited as Jesus sits there. Then a person stands up. They go to the lectern that's there in the middle of the room. The temple attendant brought them a scroll, some of the scrolls from the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. The scroll is placed out and a person reads from those, some section of scripture from the first five books of the Bible. The person first reads it in Hebrew, then translates it into Aramaic. And then at this point, Jesus stands up in order to read. He stands up and he walks to the lectern. The temple attendant brings him a scroll, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Jesus rolls out the scroll, and it's not a random reading. It says that he found a place in the scroll. The place that he found is Isaiah 61. But Jesus, as he reads Isaiah 61, does two interesting things. Let me read what he reads and tell you the interesting things that Jesus is doing as he reads it. He stands up. And he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is Isaiah 61, what we would call verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. And this is the first interesting thing he does. He brings in a passage from Isaiah 58. 
believe verse 6, to, this, this phrase right here, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and then he concludes, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then Jesus stops. He takes the scroll, he rolls it up, he hands it to the attendant, then he sits down. Now as he sits down, he's not indicating that he's done. Sitting down was the posture that a a teacher would take. Here's the, the other interesting thing that Jesus has just done. Not only has he brought in a portion of the text from Isaiah 58, he stopped at a very interesting place. Look again at the text. He says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, stop. The next line is, and the day of vengeance of our Lord. Jesus doesn't say that part of the text. He sits down. The synagogue is kind of an informal setting, but Luke tells us everyone's attention is on Jesus. Every eye is affixed upon him. What is he going to say? And Jesus begins to teach. As he teaches, he begins with these words. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He says that he began to say this. This is the portion of the time in the synagogue when a text would be exposited or explained. And so Jesus begins with those words, but I think what Luke is telling us and what we know about what would happen in a synagogue is Jesus is explaining the text that he's just read. And what would Jesus say as he sits there and as he reads and explains that text, what is Jesus saying to people? Again, we want to understand the true Jesus, don't we? And oftentimes, as we in our culture uh, look at Jesus sitting there in the synagogue teaching people, we look at him through uh, some very strange lenses. One lens that some people often look at Jesus through as he teaches there in the synagogue is the lens of what we call liberation theology. It's kind of a a left-wing theology, and Luke chapter 4, liberation theologians love Luke chapter (laughs) 4. Because what they hear as they hear Jesus in the synagogue teaching, all they hear is economic justice. A liberation theologian is a person who believes that you can sum up the gospel message not as deliverance from spiritual sin, but economic oppression. Liberation theologians are, are men like uh, Jeremiah Wright, uh, the person that, uh, that uh, President Obama uh, had to distance himself from during the presidential campaign because of some of the, the wacky things he was saying. Liberation theologians, it's, it's very big in the Latin American countries as well, they're Marxists, they're socialists, and they see Jesus as he's sitting there in the synagogue teaching from Luke chapter 4, they hear about his call to alleviate poverty, they hear about the oppression, and they say, yeah, Jesus, deliver that, deliver those people, and they preach a message of deliverance from economic oppression. That's one set of lenses that people view Jesus as he sits there in the synagogue teaching. That's one set of lenses that people look through. The other set of lens that that people look through, and perhaps those of us in this audience might be more tempted to do this way, look through through these lenses, we only see him talking in spiritual terms. One commentary that I was reading this week is very interesting. Uh, The commentator kept on inserting the word spiritual. 
So, for example, it said uh, to proclaim good news to the spiritually poor, to proclaim liberty to the spiritual captives and recovery of sight to the spiritually blind, to set at liberty those who are spiritually oppressed, and only seeing Jesus' message there in terms of spiritual deliverance. It, it wasn't a, it was a very prominent uh, pastor who, who wrote this, this commentary as well. And I'd like to talk to him sometime about what he, what he was thinking there. I believe Jesus, as he sits there, and as he teaches people in the synagogue, is talking about the implications for him as Messiah bringing about deliverance. Remember, we looked at, when we looked at Luke chapter 1 and we saw Zechariah's prophecy, we saw that God's coming kingdom is a real, physical kingdom. The Messiah is someday going to bring a real, physical kingdom. But the kingdom is also, we saw, a spiritual kingdom. Uh, to separate the spiritual and the physical kingdoms is to not understand the fullness of the Messiah's message. My son Austin, uh, he had a traumatic experience with a 3D movie one time. So uh, he, was, he was watching this 3D movie, and it was, it's, it's actually, they, they call it 4D because they add water and spray you with things and things like that. And uh, we're at SeaWorld, and he's watching this, this 4D movie, and all of a sudden this, this spider came out of the screen, and it was right there in his face. And uh, you, all over the audience you heard these, these screams, uh, but one scream seemed to last far longer than all of the other screams. And uh, one father was laughing slightly. Uh, but it was terrifying. Now, when we see something on TV or, or some sort of movie that, that's 3D, Austin won't wear the glasses. <laughs> said, no, I, that's okay. I'll just watch the blurry screen. Okay. Jesus' message, to understand the fullness of the deliverance that, that God offers, you can't just look at it in terms of spiritual deliverance, although it begins there and it's ultimately there. That's not all that's involved in the Messianic message. To understand it in its fullness, we have to see what Jesus is saying here. And let me, I'll give you a couple of examples. He says that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's telling the people as he's going through this text that he's the guy, he's the Messiah. I've been anointed. I've been anointed to proclaim good news to those who are poor. I have been anointed to proclaim liberty to those who are captives. Now, when he talks about preaching good news to the poor, the first thing he says there, uh, he's not talking about poor as you and I might understand poor. We think about the guy who drives kind of the, the beat-up car maybe as poor. The person who, who has to stay at the mission is, is maybe a, a poor person. Uh, God understands that this word that's used for poverty in this culture means completely destitute. This person is impoverished. This person doesn't know where their next bite of food is coming going to come from. The poor that Jesus is talking about here are those who have no ability to provide for themselves physically or spiritually. They are poor, destitute. Jesus says, I'm also bringing about liberty, liberty to the captives or release from the captives. You can write down Psalm 79 verse 11. I think that's a great passage that describes the type of deliverance that God brings to those who are in captivity. Psalm 79, 11 talks about both the spiritual and physical freedom 
that, the gospel, that, that God offers and that people ask God for. Jesus says, I'm also promising recovery of sight to the blind. Now, did Jesus, did he offer physical re- restoration of sight? Or was the physical restoration of sight that Jesus offered spiritual? Turn to John chapter 9 for just a moment, if you would. John chapter 9 is perhaps my favorite story in all the Gospels about Jesus' interaction with people. John chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples are passing by this man who's been blind from birth. The disciples see this blind guy, and with this spiritual arrogance, they ask Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answers this way, he says, look, it's not this man or his parents. It was that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then Jesus heals this man. He spat on the ground, made mud with saliva, anointed the man's eyes with the mud, and said to him, go wash the pool of Siloam. Now, the religious leaders at this point in John chapter 9, not Jesus' biggest fans, right? They hear about this guy that's been healed, Verse 18 says they did not believe that he'd been blind. They call on his parents. His parents say, no, he was born blind. And they said, well, well, what happened? They said, ask him. He's of age. We don't want to get involved in this controversy. It says they fear the Jews, verse 22. Then they bring in the man who'd been born blind. They say, give glory to God. We know that this man, that Jesus is a sinner. He said, look, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, now I see. They continue to argue with him. And then he says in verse 30, look, here's an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. The end result of his standing up and proclaiming the truth about Jesus Christ is that he is removed from the synagogue. Then we see this. Jesus comes to the man, he hears that they'd cast him out, and he asks him, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, I, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. What type of Recovery of sight did the Messiah offer to people. It was spiritual, but it was also physical. What type of blindness did the man in John chapter 9 have? It was a physical blindness, but even deeper than his physical blindness was his spiritual blindness. Jesus, as he sits there in the synagogue teaching, is proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. And those of you who are in the audience, as you are in the synagogue, listening to him teach, understand the messianic applications. In your mind, there's not a spiritual over here and a physical over here. You understand the fullness of this message that the Messiah is is offering. You understand the fullness of his ministry. Jesus, Jesus proclaims liberty to the oppressed, the year of the Lord's favor. And then people respond, nice message. Jesus, that that was really good. You 
you got to start a radio ministry. You're a, you're a good, you know, you speak differently than other, that's a lot of authority. That's our boy, good job, buddy. That says, Luke says, and they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? So we look at Matthew and Mark as they describe those words. We, we see that under those words, there's this sense of, it's nice, <laughs> but we know where he came from. There's this arrogant sense about the people in his hometown that say, we want to see some proof. Nice start, nice message, but let's, let's see. Jesus knows their heart. He says, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What you've done in Capernaum, do here in your own town, hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Look, I know what you're thinking in your hearts. You want me to do the things here now that you've heard about in other places. You're reserving your judgment on me and my message until you see some proof. And after Jesus has just given this amazing message about God's favor and about how God's favor is going to be coming upon people and about this messianic kingdom and just all the the amazing things that are going to happen, he lays this on them. Listen to what he's about to say. Here's an illustration of what he's about to say. Imagine if I were to leave here right now and were to walk over to the children's church, and I were to say, kids, uh, ice cream is coming. It's going to be wonderful. There's going to be chocolate and vanilla and strawberry and peppermint, and you're not getting any. I mentioned that last, our, my kids and I were reading through this passage last, last night, and I thought of that illustration. This morning we're walking in, and Noah says, Dad, are we getting the ice cream, or is another class getting the ice cream? I said, no one. <laughs> Goes on, he says, okay, here's the, here's the illustration Jesus gives. Look, he quotes, uh, first of all, from uh, 1 Kings. He says, 1 Kings 17, he says, in the days of Elijah, there were a lot of widows in Israel, but Elijah didn't go to Israel. Instead, he went to to Sidon, to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. That is in the heart of Baal worship country. In fact, let me just read an excerpt from 1 Kings 17. 1 Kings 17, there's this widow, and this widow, remember the story, she's at the, the, uh, Elijah comes to the gate of the city, the widow's there, she's gathering sticks, he says, go get me some water. She goes, okay. He says, as you do that, bring me some bread. She goes, I've got nothing. And I'm a, all I have is a little flour in a jar, a little oil in a jug. I'm going to go make that for myself and my son. Then we're going to die. She has nothing. She has great need and no ability to provide for herself. And Elijah says, go prepare it for me, and you will have food for out the rest of the famine. It will never go empty. And she does it. Here's a woman with great need, recognizes her need, obeys God in faith, and God provides for her. There are many hungry widows back in Israel, and Jesus says God didn't provide for them in the way that he did for this widow. Then he gives the example of Elisha. 
He said, uh, Elisha, in the time of, the, of Elisha, there were many lepers in Israel. None of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. You see what Jesus is saying? Don't get a sense of entitlement. You think that because you're Jews, because you're in the synagogue, you've got some sort of in with God. That you deserve his favor. There have been times in the past where that got you nothing. Right now, you are in danger. Just because you're my hometown doesn't give you an in. Can you imagine the anger that the people responded with? Jesus has just talked about this amazing kingdom. The Messiah is coming. Recovery of sight to the blind. The the, uh, alleviation of all uh, oppression and restoration of sight. Liberty to the captives. Alleviation of the, the poverty. This is a wonderful thing. The people hear all about how wonderful this place is. And Jesus delivers it in a way that no one had ever delivered this message before. They're amazed and astonished at the marvelous words coming out of his mouth. And then Jesus says, this Messiah you've been hoping for, this Messiah I've just proclaimed to you, this kingdom I've just proclaimed to you, you will have no part of it. They were angry. They were filled with wrath. How dare you? How dare you say that we will not participate in God's coming kingdom? Who do you think you are. And as they're filled with wrath and anger and rage, they take him to the mountain on which the city is built and they're going to throw him off a cliff. The Messiah was a big deal to these people. And how dare this man say that they would have no part in him. Interesting. Two weeks ago, Satan brought Jesus to a high place too, right? Tried to get him to jump off. God will take care of you. Not the way it works, Jesus said. And here we see how it works. God takes care of Jesus. And Jesus simply passes through their midst. Not time yet. It'll be time, but not yet. arrogance. We deserve God's favor. A spiritual sense of entitlement. Let me share with you two truths from this text. The first truth is this. God richly bestows his favor upon the needy. God richly bestows his favor upon those who are needy. There is a physical and spiritual need that people have, and God will bestow his favor upon, especially at this moment in our history, those who are spiritually needy. God loves to bestow his favor upon the needy. The application, I think, from this truth for us is is twofold. First of all, we have a responsibility to proclaim this message to others, to, to boldly share this message of God's coming kingdom of his favor that's going to be bestowed upon people, we must proclaim it. Uh, Secondly, the second application, I think, from this truth is that we have to be passionate regarding the spiritual and physical relief that God promises. 
we have to be passionate about the same things that the Messiah is passionate about. You know, today, there are 16,000 children, statistically, who are going to die of hunger-related illnesses, hunger-related causes. It would cost $20 million, $20 million to provide food for all the hungry today. $20 million. You say, that's a lot of money. I don't have that on me. But you know what? We, in the Western world, spend $60 million a day on diet-related products every day. Do you see the irony there? We're spending three times as much money as it would take to feed people to take care of our gluttony. We spend $62 million a day, again, three times as much as it would take to provide food for the hungry. We spend $62 million a day on food for our pets. Now, I'm not saying go home and let your little doggy starve to death, but I'm saying let's get a sense of perspective. Let's have a passion for the same things that God has a passion for. You and I understand that God richly bestows his favor upon the needy. May we at Bethany Community Church have a passion to bestow God's favor spiritually and physically upon the needy as well. Now, second truth from this text. Don't miss this. This is where I really want the application to go home with you today. Here it is. You are the needy. You are the needy, not the deserving. God richly bestows his favor upon the needy. You are the needy. You're not the deserving. So often today in our culture, there's this sense that that God loves me because there's something inside of me that that he found lovely. Christianity Today had a great article. It's entitled, Love Needs No Reason. He says, uh, some, this, the writer's uh, name is, uh, let's see, Mark Golly. He says, if we su- have some measure of intrinsic value to God, then we're saying that it's our value and not God's love that forces God's hand. He looks at us and sees something of value, and God, being a reasonable fellow, sees a good bargain, appreciates things of value like you and me, and pretty much has to save us, right? That's not how it works. He says, the prodigal son gets it exactly right. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Remember the Gentile woman that falls at Jesus' feet and says, I'm a dog, and even dogs get some crumbs, Jesus. I don't deserve your favor, God, but even just give me a little bit of of mercy. Just, Just please, just a little scrap from the table. You and I don't deserve God's favor. We are the blind We are the oppressed. We are the poor spiritually. There is nothing intrinsic in us that we can say, God, let's make a deal. We need God's grace. This isn't just some lovely message Jesus sits here and gives about God's gracious hand. It cuts the core of self-righteousness. You are poor, he says. You are enslaved. You are blind. You are oppressed. If Jesus were to sit here this morning, and he were to sit down, and he were to, to talk to us about this passage, what would he say? 
What would he say about God's favor that would cause us, perhaps, to get a little angry? What if Jesus were to sit there and to say, uh, you are not going to receive God's favor. Instead, it's going to be the Muslim terrorist. You are not going to be the one that receives God's favor. Instead, it's going to be the liberal Democrat. Or if you're a liberal, liberal Democrat, the conservative Republican. It's going to be the president of Planned Parenthood that receives God's favor and not you. What would you say if in your heart you would say, that doesn't sound right to me, God. There's something a little bit better than me in me than in that person. I'm a little bit more deserving of God's favor than that person. That is a spiritual sense of self-entitlement. And it's contrary to the message of the gospel. You are the spiritually needy. The people in Jesus' synagogue here say, that doesn't sound right to us. The Gentile getting God's favor over us, Jesus, that's not just wrong, they say, that's blasphemy, and they're ready to kill him for it. You and I are no more deserving of God's grace than fill in the blank. Two appli- three applications here. As we think about Jesus' words, you are the needy, not the deserving. First, prepare to be unpopular, okay? <laughs> Just prepare for that. It's not a very a message that brings a great deal of popularity to say to people, you are the poor <laughs> spiritually. You don't deserve God's grace. Just steal yourself for that. Secondly, Humble yourself. Humble yourself. As you think about the people that God brings you into contact with, watch for spiritual arrogance, for a sense of entitlement. Watch how your heart responds to those who are, remember, no less deserving of God's grace than you are. Then third application here that I just encourage you to to write write down these four words. Write down poor, write down captive, write down blind, and write down oppressed. And ask yourself, in, in our context, it will be more spiritual than physical, most likely. God, how am I poor? And hopefully the answer that you'll come up with is, I'm poor because, like the destitute, I have nothing of physical value to give to God in in return for his favor. I have nothing. I'm completely destitute spiritually. How How am I captive? What sins are entangling me that I have no ability to deliver myself from? How am I blind? Third word there. God, what areas of my life am I just blind to that I don't even see that I'm enslaved to? What lies of the world have I bought into concerning materialism, uh, concerning uh, just uh, relationships? Maybe I'm, I'm blind concerning my, my relationships with other people in my family or, or this young lady or this young guy. Where am I blinded? Where do I need your restoration of sight? And then finally, uh, how, how am I oppressed? How am I being weighed under with the concerns of this world, with my own sin? God, where do I need your liberty? 
encourage you to think through those things. Let me, we've gone a little bit long here. I, please apologize to the nursery workers for me, children's church workers. Let me close with this story. R. Kent Hughes tells this story in, in his book uh, on the Gospel of Luke. So he tells the story of a prestigious British church. And at this church, the minister notices that a judge is kneeling there preparing to receive communion. And right next to this judge comes a person who was a convicted thief. And this convicted thief had actually been convicted by this judge. And there the minister notices the convicted thief and the judge kneel down right next to one another and receive communion together. And he thinks, oh, how, how beautiful is that? The thief, the former thief, stands up and, and leaves. After the service, the minister and the judge are walking out together, and the judge says, did you notice who was next to me this morning? And the man says, uh, the minister says, yes. And the judge says, isn't God's grace amazing and the minister said, yes, God's grace is truly amazing. And they paused for a moment. And the judge says, I'm not sure if you understood what I meant. Who did you think I was referring to? The minister said, well, the convicted thief. You know, it's amazing that God's turned his life around. The judge says, it is amazing, but I was actually thinking about myself. He said, you know, that man had nothing else to fall back on. He understood his need. I was born a gentleman. I've been at church all my life. God in his amazing grace broke through my spiritual pride and convinced me of my need for a Savior. That, he said, is marvelous grace. May God take our hearts, those of us here at Bethany Community Church, and crush them and crush our pride and our spiritual sense of entitlement and allow us to fall humbly at his feet and say, God, we need you. We are poor. We have nothing but you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for Jesus. Father, we thank you for his hard words to us, and we pray that you would crush our hearts and allow us to depend only upon you. We thank you that you bestow your favor on those of us who are needy. Cure us of our self-sufficiency, our arrogance, our pride. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, for your glory. Amen.